This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to another Money and Markets podcast. It's been a bumper week for company news and to help me dig through, I'm joined by Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny. Hi, Dan. Yes, Christmas trading updates have been coming in thick and fast. We'll dig through the latest consumer spending data, as well as updates from big retailers like Tesco, M&S, Sainsbury's, and we'll look at the ongoing expansion of Greg's. Now, it started with a fake tweet, but the SEC has given the go-ahead to 11 Bitcoin ETFs. So we've got some huge names like BlackRock and Fidelity about to jump in after what many news websites are calling a watershed moment for cryptocurrency. Plus, I'm sure you've seen the video of that Alaska Airlines mid-flight door blowout. Shares in Boeing and some of its suppliers have understandably been impacted as the 737 MAX 9 planes are all grounded for further investigation. Plus, we'll discuss Terry Smith's latest Fund Smith letter and how to benefit from higher interest rates in your stocks and shares ISA. Our interview this week features Ian Cunningham from Asset Manager 91, He's been talking about why China might still be of interest to investors wanting Asian exposure, despite slowing economic growth and tied to corporate regulation. So quite a lot to get through, Dan, a lot of earnings updates. um, And we're going to be discussing particularly the retail sector. Um, Obviously, you know, post-Christmas, that is what everyone is talking about. And before we started to get um, these through, we did have quite a bit of data about consumer spending. So uh, British Retail Consortium, which tracks this kind of thing, um, said that Christmas sales were only up 1.7% in December. This is compared uh, to the previous year. Last December, they were up 6.9%, which just shows the difference. And of course, at 1.7%, it is nowhere near inflation, even though inflation, as we keep saying, has fallen significantly. Um, It's been really interesting to take a look at the BRC data, and I think this bears out an awful lot of what we're seeing from company updates as well. So it seems that consumers are feeling a little more confident and comfortable about their spending habits. They feel like maybe they've got a little bit more money in and they are prepared to splash out on small stuff. So lots of things like skincare and makeup got quite a significant boost in Christmas sales. But things like watches, things like those big ticket items, even in the sales, people are still quite wary of buying. Now, some of this is down to the fact that people still are really thinking about what's going to come in the next year. If they've got a fixed rate mortgage, which is due to come to an end, then when they are looking at remortgaging, they're going to be paying significantly more. People are still really wary about prices rising. Lots of talk this week about the situation in the Middle East. But also, People are spending on different stuff. Post-pandemic, it seems like experiences, travel, holidays, still a massive um, draw for where people want to spend their cash. Are you more likely to spend on stuff or experiences, Dan? Uh, I mean, I think you know, the holiday has to be number one, doesn't it? You, you plan for your holiday and see what you've got left over. It's sort of, um, <laughs> I, Have you already I, planned? Have you already booked? 
<laughs> Do you know, it's been it's been the hot debate in my household where we're going to go, and we are going to commit this weekend to somewhere. So, um, but yeah, it's 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 on the on the verge of happening. Yeah, we, we have booked. We're going to Norway, which we're really excited about. But we had some figures from Barclaycard as well. And travel last year up a massive 14.1%. And we also had an update um, about UK entertainment sales. So that's everything from streaming to going to gigs. And it's been a big year for gig spend, of course. So um, figures from the Digital Entertainment and Retail Association saw UK spend up 7% to £11.9 billion. And of course, the age old saying is absolutely true. You can only spend a pound once. And when that pound is worth an awful lot less than it was this time last year, that becomes a huge part of our decision making process. And I've heard a lot of people saying that with this earnings season, particularly in terms of retailers, in terms of the hospitality sector, we're going to have to take it company by company. We can't think this sector is going to do well, that sector is going to do well. Because within retail, what we're tending to see is that areas where people are spending on the have-to-buys or those small luxuries are doing well. But where we're seeing retailers who rely on spend on those bigger ticket items not doing quite so well, Dan. That's right. I mean, last week on the podcast, we were talking about sort of a similar thing that saying um, Next was doing quite well, because I thought because it's it's essential products you need. Um, JD Sports was not doing as well because it's sort of, you know, they're nice to have, but not not essential. And I think if you look at some of the companies that have been reporting this week, there's a similar sort of tone there. So you've got, if you look at the headline figures, Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer, Tesco, they're all, you'd all get the impression that they're doing fantastically but actually, if you, if you dig deeper, quite a lot of them are sort of this, this pockets of not quite as good as you think. Sainsbury's is really interesting because its food sales are fine, doing fantastically. Argos, which it owns, is not doing that well. Also, it doesn't seem to be people many people sort of buying clothes from Sainsbury's either. So um, you've got this sort of general merchandise um, area of weakness there. Look at Marks and Spencer's. You've got really good food sales. Actually, the clothes sales is doing quite well as well. But in in this case with Mark Spencer's and with lots of other companies that we've seen in, in the last sort of week or two, is it got a slowdown in sales growth. Because, I mean, you've got this situation, like you say, consumers are really thinking hard about where they spend their money. So um, fashion seems to be one area which is particularly weak. You know, go back last year, sort of tell them last year, names like ASOS and H&M, they're all talking about slowdown sales growth. Um, you've got names like Mark's Electrical, which is sort of um, you know, consumer electronics. They had a profit warning a couple of days ago. DIY, uh, areas like Tops Tiles, um, that's had, you know, that had a pretty poor trading update the other day. So I think across the board, like I say, if, if it's not food to put on your plate, or it's not your your holiday, or you know those nice little treats like um, say on, on sort of the cheap luxuries. It's quite hard out there. Um, I mean, what what have you been seeing then, Danny? 
Yeah, I think it is really quite hard out there. And it's fascinating to see Marks and Spencer continuing to do uh, incredibly well. I mean, it had a stellar year last year and it really has made this turnaround happen, particularly when it comes to its its women's wear, its fashion. It's just got things right. But I was really interested looking at their food sales and its remarkable range, its value range, the area that it's put in to try and tempt people not just to bob in to buy those nice-to-haves when they can afford it, but to come and do the full weekly shop. That has seen significant growth. I think it's been really smart. But that in some ways is also because people are battening down the hatches. So, you know, if they want to have a nice meal, they're more likely to go somewhere like M&S and, and buy something they can stick in the oven at home with a bottle of wine rather than going out. And we had a warning from... Um, the uh, Kate Nichols from UK Hospitality about the number of uh, restaurants closing record numbers, she says, the worst she's ever seen it in January. But on the flip side, we also had an update from the um, bar and nightclub chain Nightcap, um, who've reported record revenues because, of course, we've seen um, train strikes were cancelled in the run up to Christmas and they've done remarkably well. And we're hoping to speak to them on the podcast in, in a couple of weeks time. But it is just that thing where people are cutting their cloth. They're making choices about where they want to spend their cash that's where they're spending it and everything else is losing out. I mean, on the subject of food, we've got to, we've got, we've got to talk about grapes as well, haven't we? So, um... Oh, this is an incredible story. I mean, I have to say, I love a Greg's. I live in the north. I've been a fan of Greg's for an awful lot of years. They're sausage rolls, second to none, bacon roll with a cup of tea in the morning. You can forget your posh coffees. I'm going to go for the bacon roll and a cup of tea. But it shows no sign of slowing down. I know. Also, they were talking about, they, they, you know, over the Christmas, it's done very well. Um, lots of people buying things like seasonal festive bakes, but also chocolate orange muffin, which is a product I didn't even know existed. <laughs> <laughs> I could have I could have potentially helped their profits if I'd known that was available. But um, They're very good. I, I can comment on that. Yeah, I've tried one of those. They are Moorish. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the, the company's doing well, very well. And actually, I think if you, if you look at why it's doing well, a lot of it is to do with some just some bright ideas in the business. They've been opening their shops for longer hours because they, you know, they've done very well at getting people coming in to work, you know, getting their breakfast. Definitely do well at people um, getting their lunch or sort of a, an afternoon coffee. They're trying to pick up that trade and people going home from work, but also some some sites are open late at night as well. So um, this extended opening hours is obviously obviously working. Product innovation, hats off. They, they always seem to come up with something new and interesting that you want to do. But also behind the scenes, they're sort of making their supply chains more efficient, um, trying to improve the delivery options. So I think, you know, this is, if you want a really good example of a fantastic British business that his continues to thrive, it has to be Greg's really, isn't it? I mean, it's, I, I also, I'm really interested to see that they, they said that they're going to put the brake on price increases because inflation pressures are easing. So obviously, you know, that's not good for their sales. They you know, Theoretically, they could charge more, but not pushing through further price increases has to be good for the customer. And, 
you know, you sort of connect the dots. Does that sort of, would that lead to greater sales volumes if they suddenly become a lot cheaper versus competitors? So, um, you know, we're, we're going to see another 160 new sites open through the course of the year. So, that, you know, the Greg story keeps, you know, keeps sort of trucking along, really. Yeah, and when you think about their customer, there does come a point at which their customer goes in, takes a look at the price and walks back out the door. So I think they've played it really smart. They've also played it really smart in terms of, while they're opening all of these stores, they're also closing very quickly underperforming stores. I mean, that is smart management. And it takes an awful lot of nous to make sure that you are putting things in the right places. And it also, I think, takes some some really sort of smart management skills to be able to put your hands up when things have gone wrong and say, right, we need to do something about this. And this is certainly something that Boeing has had to do over the last couple of days. I mean, it's put its hands up and said, We've we've got some stuff wrong. Going to take a look at it. Have you seen the footage, Dan, of when yeah. the door comes off that Alaskan flight? I mean, that was just astonishing, and people so calm. Yeah, I mean, I've only seen I've seen a still photo of, of the plane on the ground, uh, including the gap that's there. But you I mean it's 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 frightening, really, isn't it? So it's no wonder that. Um, you know, if you're if you're an airline and you're a customer of Boeing, you must have been a very stressful few days. You know, checking your planes are safe to fly because you know, safety is so important in the aviation sector. Safety is so important. I mean, still statistically the safest way to travel, but the fact that off the back of this incredible um, imagery that we got from this Alaskan airline planes where some of the bolts came off, the, the fuselage section, the, the door came off mid-flight. We also then had an update because clearly um, a lot of um, airlines are, are checking then the 737 MAX 9s. It is that plane, I must stress that, and Primarily, they fly in the United States. They've all now been grounded by the Federal Aviation Administration. And then we had United Airlines saying that they'd found a number of boats in need of additional tightening, along with Alaskan Airlines also saying that it had begun inspections and had since found some loose hardware on some of the MAX 9. So, Clearly, there are some big issues which um, Boeing is having to deal with. And I don't think anyone will be surprised that Boeing's um, shares have been under pressure down uh, just over 8% since before all of this happened. And not just Boeing, of course, some of its suppliers as well. Spirit Aerosystems in particular been impacted um, it, it's uh, responsible for, for quite a large chunk of the fuselage, according to uh, a number of reports. Now, um, the FAA says that um, formal inspections will require the documentation of all findings. Those will rep be reported to the FAA. No aircraft will be returned to service until all of these steps are complete. Now, I've been out to Boeing Fields, Dan. I mean, it's, it's been a few years now, but it is an incredible manufacturing hub. And every single bolt is barcoded. Every nut, every bolt, every bit of wire, it is all barcoded. The person that has fitted it, that is all logged. It is hyper smart tech that is used there have been a lot of questions asked about the direction of Boeing, whether or not it is still very much about manufacturing excellence 
or whether in the last decade it has become more about corporate America. And I I think Boeing is going to be under pressure for quite some time because, of course, it's trying to come back from um, other issues with its 737s Max. We saw those awful crashes um, to do with uh, another system of its planes, which it was really trying to sort of get back from that. It was trying to really, um, you know, re-sort of polish its reputation And this is going to be tricky. But of course, we're talking about a duopoly, really, when it comes to these big plane makers, because they are so massively expensive. So on the one hand, we've got Boeing. On the other hand, we've got Airbus. Just taking a look at Airbus's shares. And again, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised that um, they have gone up in the last few days. I would imagine investors are sort of anticipating that that maybe a lot of people might be saying, maybe we'll switch our orders from Boeing to Airbus, but it's just not that easy to do. You know, these orders are placed years in advance and it's just a fascinating um, area to, to take a look at. Shall we talk about one of the UK's favourite funds with retail investors? Um, which is Fundsmith Equity. Uh, I don't think it really needs much introduction, given that how well known it is with, with, and how, how widely held it is with people. But what, one of the one of the sort of growing arguments is that if people are saying, "Well, if I'm paying a fund manager a fee every year um, to outperform, I want them to to actually do that." But Fundsmith has just published its annual shareholder letter, um, and it kind of the first thing you immediately notice is that you've got third year in a row that's underperformed the market um so i mean it's got not to say it's done badly in last year it did 12.4 percent uh return um which you know which is which is you know if that was a standalone product you weren't comparing it to anything that would be deemed to be a very successful investment if you compare it to the msci world index which is the benchmark for global equities that was up 16.8 percent um, so you can see it's, it's lagging a bit, but I, I think that um, you know certainly three years of underperformance has got to be causing fund manager Terry Smith some alarm. I mean, he, 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 he does discuss it in um, in this letter, sort of saying that you know a fund doesn't necessarily you shouldn't expect it to outperform every year or even to give positive returns every year. And actually, if you look at the long term, sort of uh, you know, the long term performance is still very good for Fund Smith. Um, but certainly, the, you know, it, the the more of these letters that come out, you know, highlighting it, it, it is not doing kind of like it's not beating the market. Um, the, 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 the debate will grow as to why why should we stick with these sort of star fund managers? So, um, just look at some of the comments he made. Was he, he was sort of saying that you know the market last year uh, on a global basis was certainly helped by some of these mega cap tech stocks. We call them the magnificent seven. Fundsmith owns, yeah. yeah owns some of them. I, don't, I can't. I can't believe that Terry Smith would um, proactively seek to own anything <laughs> with a name like the, the Magnificent Seven. He, he's very sort of anti these sort of uh, these labels. But he, he does own Meta and, and Microsoft. Um, but he, he's you know, despite owning Microsoft, he he's, he's comes across as quite a skeptic on AI. He, he doesn't seem to sort of. Uh, share the view that you know we, we look at AI and think, okay, this is this great new trend. Who's going to be the obvious companies? Is it Microsoft? Is it Nvidia? It's a simple. That's a simple decision. Here you go. Off you go. 
you, you might want to invest in those. What he's saying is, if, he, if you look back in history, um, at previous times, um, look at sort of previous sort of trends, particularly tech trends, he said, well, you know, what about AOL, Nokia, Yahoo, MySpace? You know, at the time, these were deemed to be sort of names that were like, okay, they're going to take over the world. Where are they now? Which is, which is a fair argument, really. <laughs> Um, I mean, certainly, I, mean, I remember things like Ask G's in, in, like that, you know, taking over the search space. These are sort of names that are destined to, to the history books now. But he's also saying that AI is not a new thing. Um, you know, IBM launched an AI model, AI model in 2011 um, called Watson. Google bought an AI company called DeepMind um, 10 years ago. So, so really, he's sort of saying that it's really... You know, you can't just simply look at the big companies and say that, therefore, that's the easiest one to do. Um, and he's also saying, that actually, there might not actually be a single winner. So many companies are getting involved. There's no shortage of contenders. So, um, it, it, yeah, I, I guess the pressure is, is growing for him. Um, but if you look at sort of the fund holdings of you know, retail investors, they still seem to put a lot of faith in Fundsmith. So I don't think we're at the point where everyone's sort of suddenly sort of dumping holdings of this fund but um you know certainly the pressure is on yeah i mean those magnificent seven stocks i mean what a run they had last year and a lot of people are sort of questioning whether or not if they didn't get involved last year they've maybe missed the boat and we're going to talk about that a lot more next week but before we move on to a huge decision over in the united states about bitcoin from the us regulator Let's hear from our guest this week. Now, China's fallen out of favour with investors big time recently. However, a few contrarians are starting to wonder if it's time to give the country another look, particularly as stock valuations are cheap. Falling into this camp is Ian Cunningham, head of multi-asset growth at Asset Manager 91, and we're lucky enough to have him on the show today. So, Ian, thanks, thanks for joining us. I, th I think the first question I have to ask is, if we go back about 12 months ago, lots of people were really excited about China, the idea that um, COVID restrictions were being lifted and we, we, we might have seen a, a, sort of a really big economic reopening. It, it's, it's fair to say that was a bit of a flop. What, what actually went wrong there? Hi, Daniel. Thank you for, thank you for having me. I think there's, there's probably a few things to, to touch upon there. So I think the relative to the developed world, China's had a very different experience over the last few years. So I think when we look at the experience of the developed world through COVID, we had obviously quite extended periods of, of, of lockdowns with obviously gaps in between. Uh, and we had huge amounts of money printing and huge amounts of sort of free money that was handed out in, in different parts of the world, um, particularly in the U.S., um, that's created some challenges in the sense of um, the nominal growth boom that we've had, i.e. the inflationary boom. In China, we've not really seen any of that in the sense of there was very limited handouts uh, from a fiscal perspective, and there was, there was effectively no money printing. Uh, China did a sort of a stimulus cycle post the, the, the COVID period uh, or the initial COVID shock, um, which facilitated quite a robust initial recovery. But then China went into its mantra of sort of short term pain for longer term gain heading into 2021, did some very aggressive clampdowns on the real estate sector, ran down their credit cycle very aggress aggressively, which is equivalent to the Chinese central bank hiking interest rates very dramatically. Um, 
And then they did that big regulatory reset that we're now all very familiar with across technology platforms, a lot of anti-competitive behavior, uh, going into gaming, education, areas of healthcare. Um, and all of this has weighed upon sentiment um, and particularly some of the negative wealth effects coming from real estate, which they are quite meaningfully trying to consolidate through time, um, has led to a, a far more muted uh, recovery than, than was certainly expected at the beginning of this year, broadly by consensus. So you mentioned about some stimulus initiatives. Because um, it's been my understanding that you know, if you if you look back at history, when when perhaps the economy wasn't as growing as as fast as expected, the, the Chinese government would sort of roll out new stimulus measures. But it sort of feels like it's being a bit more restrained these days. Is is that right? And, and if so, why? Mm. Well, if you if you look at China, the Chinese economy works very differently to what we see in the developed world. So again, in the developed world, we tend to have central banks. They raise interest rates or cut interest rates, and then that has a follow-on effect on sort of borrowing and lending, which then influences growth in the economy. China sort of misses out the first step because the, the state controls the main banks. They, they control the direct flow of credit. Um, and ultimately, they can determine who that credit goes to uh, across the economy and how much is being pushed into the economy. Now, what we've seen in China over the last 10 years is we've seen sort of a bit of a stop go economic growth model where we've seen quite a relatively short cycle driven by this credit cycle of stimulus coming in when times are bad then when effectively things look good again they then tighten and take all that stimulus out and then have to put it all back in again and this has sort of led to a gradual creep higher in leverage ratios across the, the economy and what china's really been trying to do um since about 2018, I think they were forced into it post-COVID due to the nature of the COVID shock, um, forced to do to effectively do a, a stimulus cycle. Um, but what we've effectively seen post this period uh, is what they're trying to do is try and not do this again. So they're trying to effectively create more robust, higher quality and sustainable growth on a forward going basis. Uh, relative to what they've done in the past. So the risk is for the Chinese authorities is they typically always end up over-easing because they need to ensure growth for sort of their social contract with the population. But what they're trying to do this time is to do enough stimulus to get the, the recovery going without doing too much so they then have to rein it all in and tighten again in, say, 18 months to two years' time. So, I mean, China saw GDP growth in high single digits and low double digits in the early 2000s. But I think you know, it seems to be getting lower and lower since about 2010. Does, does that sort of suggest we actually need to sort of rebase our expectations for China's long-term economic growth, perhaps to mid-single digit level or, or even less, perhaps? Yeah, so I think, I think when you look at China across the last uh, 20 years, obviously there was probably what you term a fixed asset investment boom through the early 2000s. Um, that led to very high nominal growth rates. Um, the Chinese authorities were quite clear, sort of heading into the financial crisis, that they wanted to rebalance the economy away from fixed asset investment towards consumption, which meant a slower overall growth profile because consumption can't grow that quickly because uh, wages have to, to drive it naturally and they're more tied to sort of... Uh, real real growth linked into the consumption trends. Um, and we've seen that gradual process taking place 
Um, and then obviously you have demographic trends within that and what growth is in an economy is basically how many more people do you have and how more productive are all the people within the economy. And so when you look at China on a forward going basis, uh, a lot of the demographic tailwinds are, are sort of dissipated. So there's going to be shrinking working age population, but you should see ongoing urbanization. So we think the demographic trends are probably about neutral over the next five to 10 years but they're no longer the positive they were. And so much of the growth we have is going to have to come from productivity gains. And so probably what you're likely to see is over the next 10 years or so is real growth potential in China will continue to slow. So currently we're sort of around 5% or slightly above. That's going to continue to, to come down gradually as we, we head forward on a, on a real, real basis. I can understand that investors have been pretty pessimistic towards China because of this slowdown in economic growth. You also mentioned about um, sort of interference by the government for the technology sector. Do, so do you, do you think these, sort of these additional factors with the government sort of meddling with different industry sectors is really putting people off wanting to invest in this space? Mm. So I think there's, there's, there's some interesting dynamics here because there's there's what we call cyclical aspects in China. There's the structural aspects, and then there's the sentiment and investor kind of extrapolation attached to those. So, I think when we look at first of all the structural aspects, there's definitely structural challenges that China faces, and authorities are very much um, trying to address those over time. So they want to address those issues over, say, many many years. Um, and so you've got challenges associated with demographics that we just touched upon. You've got demographic, you've got challenges associated with the real estate imbalance, which they've obviously been clamping down hard on in the last couple of years. Uh, you've got challenges with some leverage in local government uh, entities and some state-owned enterprises. And then you've obviously got all of the geopolitical headwinds that have emerged over the last uh, last sort of number of years. So there's those structural challenges that people are concerned about. On top of, but, but though a lot of those aren't new. Those have been with us for, for, for a long period of time. Um, then you've got the cyclical challenges on top of this. So um, from a cyclical perspective in China, you have cycles like you see elsewhere in the world. They've tended to be shorter in nature, as we touched upon earlier. Um, one of these dynamics is linked to this credit cycle that I touched upon uh, previously. And then there's a regulatory cycle on top of that as well. And quite clearly in China, when things are bad, for the economy, there's very little new regulation or state interference because they're trying to improve confidence. When things look really good in the economy, then you need to be really worried about prospective regulatory or state interference because that's when they're going to come down, come and clamp down on various areas. So where we find ourselves now is actually regulation has gone pretty quiet for about 12 months now and will likely remain so until we see a more robust recovery taking hold. Stimulus is being pushed in quite hard now um, by authorities and will continue to get, get easier as we move forward and, uh, until the, the economy responds. Um, and relative to sort of two years ago when, it, when investors were quite enthusiastic about China, everything looked great. They said they were gonna come in and do a big regulatory clampdown on anti-monopolistic uh, anti sort of uh, behaviors and the, and the like. Um, and sort of now we've swung the full pendulum. Um, so people were quite enthusiastic at a time, maybe they shouldn't have been a couple of years ago, and now exceptionally pessimistic, where we would say sentiment is probably a little bit detached from reality because things aren't as bad as is, is, is being perceived would be our view. I was going to say, I, I got the impression that you're a bit more optimistic 
towards China when, when so many others are negative? Is you know what is it that sort of gives you the sort of the uh, the confidence to want to sort of invest money in this country? Mm. Well, I think the I think I think there's a few things here that we would say. So so first of all, um, we recognise that China does have structural challenges. Um, the authorities are trying to address those over over many many years, rather than sort of let them all sort of create havoc at, at once um, in terms of creating a major financial crisis or major stagnation. Uh, the view that we see sort of maybe not quite consensual, but there's a lot of aspects in terms of broader investor sentiment or the press associated with China turning Japanese, i.e. moving into a full-blown stagnation where they'll lose a couple of decades of growth, um, or uh, having a full-blown financial crisis. Um, at some point in the not too distant future, we would say that because China is a close, uh, relatively closed economy, so it's a closed capital account because it's a command economy, because the state control the flow of credit and funds across the economy, they they have more ability to manage um, sort of uh, defaults and, and these different challenges. So they can manage systemic risk easier by keeping the flow of funds and, and credit available. Um, so we're, we're less concerned about the aspects of financial crisis, and we think they will do what it takes to prevent stagnation, because in Japan, authorities there effectively sat on their hands for a couple of decades, whereas China is showing that they're certainly not sitting on their hands, and they're, they're doing a lot more. And then what we'd say is investing in China, we don't want to invest in China on a very broad basis, because there's a lot of areas that do face headwinds and challenges, and, and we'll see ongoing state interference. Um, but there are areas that actually have state support um, and have considerable growth tailwinds behind them within an economy which will continue to slow on average. Uh, we will obviously see areas that do very well and areas that do do less well. So we see a, a lot of very interesting businesses now trading on on pretty attractive valuations. So that was Ian Cunningham. So, Danny, should we move on to the big news from the SEC, giving a go ahead to a number of Bitcoin ETFs? What does this mean? Yes, they they actually did do it, despite the fact that um, 24 hours earlier we had a tweet saying that it was happening and then the um, SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, said, no, we didn't send that tweet, it's not <laughs> happening. And uh, X confirmed last night that um, their account had been hacked, so someone had tried to sort of send this out. I would imagine, to impact the price of Bitcoin. However, this long-awaited decision to allow Bitcoin ETFs has been given the go-ahead, 11 been given the go-ahead. Now, let's just break it down. So an ETF is a really easy way to invest in assets that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily invest in. So a really good example I saw quoted in The Guardian was gold. You know, if you wanted to invest in gold, you don't want to have a bar of gold under your bed because you think about all the security and the insurance that you've got to deal with that. However, you know, you can do it through one of these ETFs. And that is the same idea for Bitcoin. Um, effectively, it, it allows you to trade. You can see the price. Um, you can buy and sell um, on uh, a daily basis uh, and, and sort of real time price, not futures, which we have seen in Europe before. But the expectation is that this is going to be a game changer for Bitcoin. And potentially we could see other cryptocurrencies also getting their own ETFs. And it's 
massive because institutional investors that have probably been put off, particularly over the last year, by some of the huge disruption in the sector. You know, when we saw Sam Bankman fried jailed for fraud, we saw the collapse of FTX. We've seen a lot of people lose a lot of money. We've seen huge volatility and a lot of questions being raised. But we now have, likely as early as, well, as you're listening to this podcast, we're recording uh, on Thursday morning, we're expecting later today that potentially BlackRock could kick off its first ETF. Fidelity, Invesco also have been pushing hard to get their funds approved. So expect an awful lot of competition here. Uh, It has impacted the um, price of Bitcoin, of course, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised to hear that. Um, we've seen um, Bitcoin jump up considerably, 70% since October, once the expectation that this would happen was sort of getting into investors' minds. But we're still talking about, you know, Bitcoin trading quite below the highs that it saw um, a couple of years ago, it is still volatile. And I think what was fascinating to know is that even though the SEC has given this the go ahead, it did come with a serious health warning attached. Um, We had um, Gary Gensler, the agency's chairman, saying, look, investors should remain cautious about the myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and products whose value is tied to crypto. Now, I don't think that we're going to see the UK regulator making this kind of move anytime soon. So, of course, this is only happening in the United States We also had, interestingly, the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, talking to MPs yesterday, Wednesday, about the state of UK economy. And he said that he felt that Bitcoin was inefficient and not taking off as a financial service. But this is really interesting, Dan, isn't it? That the whole idea now that institutional investors, that retail investors who in the past have had to get themselves a a digital wallet, have to go and buy their own crypto, can now do it under an umbrella, under a, a sort of protection. I think a lot of people will be thinking of it as a protection of some of these big names that they already know and already trust. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, certainly you're right to point out that, um, this isn't coming to the UK, certainly not in the foreseeable future. I, I, I think the natural thing people would do is like, okay, well, this is if it's an easier way for me to invest in Bitcoin, does that mean I can now chuck that in my ISA or in my pension? And of course, you know, the answer is no, you definitely can't at the moment. Um, but, you know, the, the whole concept of, of Bitcoin, um, I, I still feel that you're... That, that, if, you, if you're into cryptocurrencies, you absolutely people are so so passionate about it, but but you know there are sort of long term investors who sort of just go mm, not so sure, don't really understand how the the dynamics work. So what we can't so what the markets kind of can't say now is that taking the assumption that if we've got more people um, finding a, an easier way to invest in Bitcoin in, in the US, um, there'll be more demand for it. And of course, that like I say, that's already pushing up the price. Um, but you know, how long does that uh, that trend last? I'm sure. I'm sure the Bank of England is going to be you know, taking a look to see what gauge of demand in, in the US. Um, you know, the financial regulator in the UK is certainly going to be um, you know looking at this as well. But 
Um, you know, personally, I, I, I can't see it happening in the UK uh, anytime soon at all. Um, yeah. But yeah, I say, I'm not a crypto. I'm not a crypto fan. Um, I sort of clearly fall onto the, into the sort of camp of um, of, of, of I'm a, I'm a long term investor. So I mean, does it excite you, Danny? Crypto at all? Uh, do you know what's really interesting is that my teenage daughter, 17 years old, she's got friends that do have crypto investments. You know, you're, you're talking about teenagers that have got talking about investments. They've got talking about, you know, investing in cryptocurrency at that kind of age. And I think anything that breaks through to kids and makes them think about investing for the future is a good thing. That said, I, I, I do worry about cryptocurrency. I, I don't feel that we can properly kick the tires yet. You know, when you think about investing in companies or in infrastructure, you you already interact with it on a personal level. You can understand it. And, and I just don't feel confident and comfortable that I can understand it. Lots of investors out there will say, well, look, we do feel comfortable and confident. We do understand it. We love crypto. What are you talking about? And it is that sort of Marmite thing, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, big moves, groundbreaking moves. You know, we, we've seen, heard a lot of superlatives um, about this, but I, I do think it is is a, a massive game changer. I mean, on, the, on the subject sort of, of massive moves, last year we saw a trend for quite a lot of investors to essentially sell their shares and and, and sort, of, sort of funds and put the money into cash um, because, you know, they were going, well, hang on a minute, for the first time in God knows how many years, we stopped, I can now get 5 6% interest on cash. Um, and so what, what I'm now seeing is that the, the rates on cash savings accounts are starting to come down. Um, and I, I, saw, I thought I'd just sort of, Slip this one into the podcast to sort of you know, stimulate this debate. You know, you think okay, you don't have to um, sell all your investments and move into cash to take advantage of the sort of the current higher interest rate environment. There's there's quite a lot of different options that you can you can do there. Uh, I, I think that you you know there is this definitely also mis- misconception that higher rates are, are bad for all equities. I, th- I think the past year has shown that's that's not the case. Um, you know, don't forget shares offer the scope for for dividends, and of course those dividends can grow each year. Not all of them do, but quite quite a lot of them do. Um, with cash, your interest is typically fixed. But if you were, if you were looking at your portfolio now and thinking, okay, well, you know, what do I do? You know, if I if I want to say keep keep my money in, a, in an investment ISA or or in a SIP, um, I don't particularly want to you know cash out and go into cash. One of your options is to potentially look at money market funds. Now, these, these sort of predominantly invest in short-term deposits with banks, um, short-term loans to, to governments, banks, large companies, sort of thing. But the return from the average money market fund last year was 4.66%. So that's it's almost like what you, you could potentially get with cash. Um, now, these money market funds typically have low levels of volatility. That might be of interest to sort of the, the more cautious investor. Um, Bond funds. Now, bonds are, you know, bonds had a pretty terrible time as interest rates started to to shoot up. But now that um, yields gone up and prices have gone down, lots of people are starting to look more closely at the bond space. Particularly if if we if we take the view that 
the direction of travel for interest rates might actually be flat to, to, to being cut. Um, I think investors sort of saying, well, you know, that means I can buy a bond much cheaper than I have been able to in a long time. Um, can I sort of lock in some sort of higher yields than that I've been able to see in a while as well? So um, you can get um, bond funds that invest in, in government bonds or even in corporate bonds, which, you know, the, the, the bonds of companies. Um, you can either do that, uh, obviously, by funds, or you can buy them individually as well. But I think for most people, the easiest way to buy them would be to, to go through a fund. And I've noticed that, the, you know, the market has been trying to sort of uh, take a sort of a different view of where we might go with rates. Um, in the last couple of months, there's, there's more talk about rate cuts. And actually, you know, I've seen some movements in bond funds, which, which are very interesting. Uh, you don't, you wouldn't normally expect bond funds to sort of move um, quite rapidly. But you know, things like the iShares Global Aggregate Bond ETF is up 6% since the start of November. Um, Artemis Strategic Bond Quarterly is up nearly 8% over the last three months. Uh, we've also had eight percent rise from Invesco Bond Income Plus. These are these are just some examples. So I think that you know, I say as as these those markets sort of now starts to think about potentially when we might get rate cuts, um, you know, bonds are on the move. And so I, I think that this is often an area that's sort of overlooked by investors. People think, okay, this is just for people in retirement. Um, but yeah, it, 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 there's some there's some interesting movements there. And just finally, I just sort of point out that multi asset funds are another option if you're looking you don't want to move out of cash, as well, move, you know, move into cash. You you could get a multi asset fund which invests across a range of different things like shares and property, commodities, bonds, and, and actually they invest in cash as well. So um, they do come in a range of risk profiles. So it, it would suit investors who've got different uh, appetites for volatility. Um, and I certainly think it might interest someone who wants a mixture of assets in their portfolio, but actually wants a professional fund manager to pick and choose what to invest in. So um, just one more one more thing on this. I, saying, I had a quick look to see what, what is happening with cash rates. And so um, the you know, best buys in fixed rate savings bonds, I think just before Christmas, are about 5.6%. Now they're 5.3% is what you can get for a one year. Um, Metro Bank was at the top of the sort of the, the, the best buy tables quite a while, but this bank has now withdrawn all its fixed rate accounts at the moment. Um, so you, you are lucky. You can probably still find just over five percent uh, in the market, but certainly, you know, if you, if you look at the sort of the trend in the last sort of month or two, these rates are are definitely coming down. So something to think about if you have money all tied up in um, in cash uh, because you've moved out investments. I was going to say, whatever you do with cash, whatever you do with your savings, don't just ignore it. There was some research out, and I'm really sorry because I can't remember who it was that quoted it, but it was one of the building societies that has found that despite the fact that we've seen huge moves in terms of cash savings levels over the last year, lots of people haven't moved their savings to a better rate. They're still languishing on teeny tiny amounts. So wherever you choose to put your money, just make sure that you keep an eye on it, that you interact with it in some way, that you don't just ignore market changes um, because you know clearly you can end up missing out if you do that. But if you're listening to this podcast, clearly you are interested, you are engaged, you are interacting. Um, and that's it from this week's podcast. We've certainly covered a whole load. Next week, as I 
tantalised you with earlier, we are going to be talking tech stocks. We've got Mark Seidenberg from Alliance Technology Trust on the programme. And I know AI still dominating headlines, despite what uh, Terry Smith was talking about, you you were mentioning earlier. Uh, And I think everyone um, interested in tech has been taking a look at the uh, big tech conference CES in Vegas. Uh, Anything caught your eye, Dan? Yeah, I've I've got to mention this one. It's a folding TV, which to me seems like the most ridiculous invention ever. (laughs) It's the idea you've got a big TV in your screen. Okay, well, I'm not watching it. I'll just fold it away, pop it in the corner. But what? uh, the world doesn't need a folding TV. That's what I think. I don't know. I I quite like that idea of a folding TV. You know, if you're sort of a Marie Kondo type that wants to keep things nice and neat and tidy, fold it away when you're done. That works for me. We were talking retail right at the top of the shop, the one that caught my eye, which potentially has, you know, could impact retailers that um, do online sales quite considerably. It's an ability to take a picture of yourself and then see what you would look like with a certain bag on so you'd see how it looks on you. And I think going forward, we are probably going to get into a situation where you can stick your measurements in and you'll be able to see what stuff looks like so you can gauge which size you need to buy. And instead of having to buy three and four pairs of the same pair of jeans just to make sure you get the right one, nope, you'll know straight away. That's interesting because that, that a, a version of that does already exist. I've definitely seen some of the retailers offering the ability to sort of do a virtual self, um, trying different what would what would their clothes look like on you know different shapes and sizes. But yeah, I guess yeah, I mean that that, that would definitely be useful, wouldn't it? So, um, so that's all we've got time for this week. To say, um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're, if you're perhaps new to listening to it. Um, we'd love to get review from all everyone listening do let us know what you think about it um and just say thank you very much for listening we'll catch you next time before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell or shares magazine the podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not and don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.